0: Good morning, and happy Pentecost. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts. We're going to look at chapter 2 in particular this morning. And while we're turning there, I've already gave it away. Uh, what today is, we've talked. Now, as we've gone through the kind of closely gathered, clustered events on the Christian calendar. We've talked about the five evangelical feast days and what are those? Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost. So we are at the end of the Christian calendar, the the fifth evangelical feast day uh, and it is truly worth celebrating. We're going to look at the narrative of this event from Acts 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, and once you're there, then I'll ask, as always, to stand in reverence for God's word. And these are the inerrant words of an infallible God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. And You may be seated. So on these five evangelical feast days, as they're often called or historically have been called, our Sunday services have been different. I am a strong believer, as all of us elders are, in a normal diet of just sequential, verse-by-verse, sequential exposition. That's the Bible, the way it presents itself to us. Uh, And yet I think it is fitting uh, to mark certain days on the calendar and to do what's called redemptive historical preaching, uh, which is looking at the big story arc, which is what we have indeed done. Uh, We do that at Christmas, we do it at Easter, and now through these days as well. And this helps us to zoom back and get a a, a picture of the big story arc that is happening all through Scripture. And as we do this, what we want to notice, what I hope we can see, uh, is advance and uh, both continuity and discontinuity from the Old and to the New Testament. This is, after all, one story, uh, and a story advances, a story moves, and yet there's harmony between the parts. The Bible is rich in symbols. The Bible is full of foreshadowing, subtle repetition, topology, progress, and advance. And these events cluster around this time of year, because Ascension and Pentecost are only nine days apart. And Ascension is only 40 days after the resurrection, after Easter. And I hinted at it last week. But Pentecost is on day 49 after the resurrection, seven weeks. And sevens and multiples of seven are all through Scripture. And so it's fitting that this is day 49, seven sevens. Pentecost, however, the word itself means 50 because it is on the 50th day of the first Sabbath after Passover. And remember, the Christian Sabbath has moved from the the Jewish uh, seventh day to now the Christian Lord's Day is on the first day marking uh, this new creation reality. And so that's why, depending on how you number it, it's either 49 or 50 days. 50 days after the Jewish Sabbath, 49 days after the resurrection. And, of course, because we are Christians and we're celebrating a new resurrection every time we gather on Sunday is, in fact, a celebration of the resurrection. It follows that pattern. Resurrection marks a new creation and the new reality that we are living in on this side of Christ. And as we do this redemptive historical approach to preaching and to looking at the big story of the Bible, I want to encourage all of us to keep reading the Bible with new eyes, with intrigue, for types and shadows, to see the romance of symbolism and the layered richness of repeating patterns, I think that is one of the healthiest things we can do for our head and for our heart, for doctrine and for devotion both. If you live in my house or you trust the testimony of my family, you will know that I am a very easy crier. But seeing God's attention to detail in the way it works through history does honestly choke me up very often. And as we contemplate on some of these events, I I challenge you to think about the storytelling aspect of our mighty God. At Christmas time, we often hear about baby Jesus being wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger, in a stable. And perhaps if you're like myself, you've heard many ministers explain that a stable wasn't necessarily a wooden structure with 16-inch studs on center like we do today, uh, but that it was very likely a cave or a notch in a rock. And that was the stable, and we hear that, and okay, that's an interesting historical tidbit that really doesn't mean anything. But when we go deeper into the birth narrative of Christ, we see that when Jesus is 40 days old, after the time of his cleansing, or his mother's cleansing and purification has passed, they present Jesus at the temple. And it struck me this week that this is, in fact, an early pattern. Because in the events of Good Friday and what follows, we will see that that is not the last time that Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes, put in a cave, only to be presented before God 40 days later. That's this story here again. At Christmas, we hear about the Magi coming from the east to worship Christ, and they're bringing their treasures to him. On Ascension Day we see the way the biblical authors tie the events of ascension to the Psalms, particularly Psalm 2, and Christ's coronation, and how all kings must now bring their treasure into the new Jerusalem and bend their knee to the king. The Magi were an early type of what all creation must do at the naming of Jesus. After Christmas, we read about how Jesus was presented at the temple, but this can only happen after his mother is away for 40 days for cleansing for purification. And then as Jesus enters another chapter of his life, he is going to recapitulate Israel's 40 years of testing in the desert with his own 40 days of testing in the wilderness. On Ascension Day, we're reminded again of the importance of 40 and 40 days of testing. 40 days of being in the wilderness, so to speak, before entering into the promise. At the beginning of these 40 days, the apostles are fearful and timid, but after their days of 40... their 40 days of testing are complete they are full of new life and enthusiasm we also see the way that God has ordered things with meticulous detail to layer these holidays right on top of each other where they make the most sense we probably all know that Easter falls on Passover and typologically of course this is a perfect fit both tell a story about the wrath of God that is coming and the only way out is to be covered in the blood of a lamb Resurrection Sunday took place on the Feast of First Fruits. This was a Jewish festival of the early fruits, uh, the fruit harvest, figs and grapes for wine and so forth. And this too is a fitting symbol for a new life at the beginning of a new creation order. And this is also fitting since Jesus, we saw at Easter time, is mistaken for a gardener, and indeed he was a gardener, a gardener of the new creation, following the first Adam who was a gardener of the first creation. Jesus is the new Adam of a new world and the timing of this falls with a stubbornly intentional feast which marks the first fruits. And so perhaps because we live so far after the time of the biblical authors and, and live in kind of a different headspace than them, maybe it's missed on us. But get back into the calendar that they were working with and then think again more closely of what it means in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty when it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The calendar said this happened at the time of first fruits, when the grape and the fig harvest started. So what about Pentecost? Pentecost is actually a Jewish holiday that existed before the events we just read about in uh, Acts chapter 2. This was already an established holiday on the Jewish calendar. Pentecost is 49 days, or seven weeks, as I mentioned, after the Feast of First Fruits, or Resurrection Sunday. So it's 50 days after the Passover Sabbath, hence the name Penty. And Pentecost was also called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, because it's seven weeks after the First Fruits. And this was a, a festival that also commemorated harvest. So after the fruit harvest comes the wheat and the barley harvest, and that is what was being celebrated at Pentecost, is uh, this grain harvest. So it is another kind of harvest festival that coincided with the wheat and the barley harvest and also over time it came to include a celebration about God giving the law to Moses at Mount Sinai and these are all going to be important themes uh, for the Pentecost of Acts chapter 2. The layering of the resurrection and of Pentecost on feast days that were already established on the Jewish calendar marked new life and new fruit is significant in ushering in this new covenant reality. The day of Pentecost was Pentecost before Acts chapter 2, as I said, and this is why the people were gathered together on this day, as we saw in the narrative. And one of the recurring patterns that we see in Scripture is the pattern of blessings and of curses for faithfulness and for unfaithfulness. Sometimes it appears in creation and decreation themes. For example, some have noticed that the 10 plagues on Egypt is creation in reverse, it's decreation. Marriage and divorce language is likewise often used. And one way that I visualize it, if this is helpful for you or not, I I tend to think of these things like a zipper, right? Sometimes God's pulling it closed. He's bringing it back together, and then there's a season of cursing and a season of disobedience, and it pulls apart again. And this back and forth with this zipper, divorce and remarriage, keeps happening over and over again. Read the book of Judges. That's all it is. (laughs) The people fall into sin. Hard times come. It gets hard enough that they repent, And then God blesses them. And as soon as they've enjoyed those blessings for 15 minutes, they start getting proud and they start asking for a curse once again. This is what rhymes through the Bible. Creation and decreation. Don read about the curse of Babel this morning. And the curse on Babel is, in fact, a curse. It's a confusion, a tearing apart. And Pentecost, which we celebrate today, is a reversal of that curse. It's God putting back together something that he used as a curse earlier on in the story. It's a coming together of what has been painful, what has marked divorce. Babel was a symbol of ancient pagan unity. And pagan unity can indeed be surprisingly powerful. Under what authority were the people of Babel working on their project? They were all of one lip, of one... Uh, thinking of one mindset, an idolatrous mindset. And we know true unity can only be under the lordship of the ascended Christ. And so this was, in fact, an idolatrous form of unity that the people at Babel had. They had one language, one religion, or as we might say it in our common language today, they had one set of community standards. They had a unified and cohesive culture, but it was an idolatrous one. Their unity was unity in defiance of Yahweh, hatred towards him, competition against him. And so God scatters these people in judgment for their idolatrous attempt at unity. That is not bending the knee to him. And we all know that there is no power in disunity. It turns into chaos. There's no power, there's no strength when people are scattered. And yet unity, even if idolatrous, can present significant strength, The the Genesis narrative says that right there. This is just the beginning of what they're going to do. And in verse 7 of Genesis 11, it says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Some modern commentators, some modern theologians, especially those associated with something called open theism, where God doesn't really know the future, because if he did, that would mean the future is predestined. And some of us say, yes, that's correct be willing to go there, that's where the Bible goes, uh, they have taken texts like this and said, see, God doesn't know everything. He doesn't know. He smells something as fishy going down on earth, but he has to go down and examine it. He has to go down and learn. He has to go down and see for himself because God is not omniscient. That is a poor reading of the text. This text is not displaying any limitation on God, but on man. God is trivializing the efforts of these men. He says he has to go down. <laughs> they're building their big tower. I have to go down to get a glimpse of that little thing that they're trying to do there. That's cute. Okay? This is not about God's limitation. This is about man's limitation. These men are building a counterfeit Jacob's ladder. And instead of trusting in a merciful God to condescend down to his creation, they are trying to build their way up there. And this is worth asking, how many Babel projects do we vainly continue to attempt today? The idols of our own day most certainly include more failed attempts at false unity. R.C. Sproul tells a story. One time he was in a cab with Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer, for the older people, will ring as an important evangelical figure. He was an important cultural apologist, evangelist. Uh, in the 1970s, and at one conference, Dr. Sproul got to share a 15-minute cab ride with him. He said, Dr. Schaefer, this is right before he died, what's the most important idol of our day? And he said, Dr. Schaefer never even hesitated, statism. Absolutely, it's statism. The state is going to claim authority in every part of human existence. And I think Dr. Schaefer was correct. Statism is indeed an ancient idol and a most contemporary one. We see it in all attempts. The state is going to take care of us from cradle to grave. Tell us how to think. Educate us. Take care of children. Educate children. Get law from their own Sinai. Of course, there's other places as well. But this is a big one in our day, and it takes shape in many different forms. And sometimes even the state doesn't get big enough in our idolatrous conception, so we have to make a state of states. We have to make this even bigger. Paranational organizations, so we can puff up our chest bigger. It's not good enough to be France. We need to be the European Union. It's not good enough to be Canada. We must be NATO. We must be the United Nations. We have to puff our chest up bigger. And all these futile forms of corporate solidarity are empty attempts at unifying man under the false gods. The triune God, and he, the Trinity is hinted at in the Genesis narrative, where he says, let us go down. He has to descend to see a project so small. He is mocking. The Genesis narrative includes sarcasm and ridicule. I must go down to see what these people are trying. And then he divides these people so they will be confused and perpetually at war against one another throughout history. And he does this so he can establish his kingdom on the eternal kingship of Christ. He must shake, and God does this often in history. He shakes that which looks powerful so that which is not able to be shaken remains. Pentecost is a new beginning, a new creation, a bringing back, a blessing where there was cursing. In verses 1 through 4 in Acts 2, which is our text, it says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And again, these people are all together because this is an established feast day on their calendar. And the first descriptor we have for the work of the Spirit here is the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The Spirit is described as wind. And again, when we see this and we look back, we see, of course, the Spirit is wind. In First Kings 19, God comes to speak to Elijah, and he speaks after a series of wind, earthquakes, and fire. Then the voice of God comes to Elijah. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is told to go preach to dry bones. There's this yard of dried out, dead bones. And God says, Ezekiel, go preach to them. And he's thinking, they're dead. And God says, yes, exactly. That's right, they're dead. Start preaching. And when Ezekiel starts preaching, the wind of God comes over and these bones start to join together. And there's sinew and there's cartilage And he said, Keep preaching, Ezekiel. And suddenly there starts to be flesh and meat on these bones. All right, you're doing good, Ezekiel. Keep preaching. And finally, God breathes life into these dead bones and they are alive once again. Friends, that is a picture of the gospel. That is a picture of the gospel. Dead bones. We are not sick people looking for medicine. We're not people flailing around in the water waiting for someone to throw us a life preserver. We're dead. Dead. Go to the graveyard with your medicine and tell those people to take their medicine. That's the gospel. Okay? Rebirth is entirely from the breath of God. We are telling dead people to repent and amazingly they do. Not because they chose it but because God is breathing life into them and they come out. The breath of God means life. In Psalm 104, the psalmist speaks of the glory of God in creating the cosmos when it says that he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot, he rides on the wings of the wind, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called the workhorse of the Trinity because he is always the one who is working, carrying, and applying the work of God to creation. And the wind is the wind of God's Holy Spirit in his work of creation. At Pentecost, when the Jews were assembled to feast over the first fruits of the harvest, the Spirit of God has blown in to hover over the waters once again, just like he did earlier in Genesis, bringing order from chaos. Once again, the Spirit is at work in making a brand new world. The Spirit has always been working, Even in the old covenant days, and we've talked about that in Sunday school. Yes, he's there, but he's in the shadows. We don't really have a name for him. We don't have a job description for him, but he is there in shadow form. And this old covenant of works that God made with Adam is dead, since Adam introduced death by breaking it. And the old covenant was an expanding and growing set of covenants that God made with his people, and it is full of promise, but it remains empty of substance until Jesus Christ appears. Christ is the substance of what was promised to Noah and Abram and Moses and David, and the Spirit is the life that is breathed in to these promises. So like at creation, like Genesis 1, like Psalm 104, the Holy Spirit is once again showing up, hovering over the waters, creating order, creating a new reality. It's like a shoot coming out of a seed. Life has been breathed into the people of God as the Spirit starts his work of applying Christ's benefits to them. This is a new creation. It's suiting that we plant crops at this time of year, and there's new life emerging from these seeds that we put in the ground by faith. The Holy Spirit has introduced a new creation at Pentecost, a new covenant world, a fulfillment of what has been in the past. And the next descriptor for the Spirit that we see in Acts 2 is that it's a divided tongue of fire. In Genesis 11... The triune God came down in judgment on Babel. Now he comes down in a judgment of fire. And this is a sign to the Jews and their unbelief that this has cut them off from God. But God doesn't leave it there because he opens the door once again for Jews and all other nations who are going to partake in the work of the kingdom. And in the Old Testament, God's work is often spoken of in fiery language, We hear about smoke coming out of his nostrils, a devouring fire from his mouth, fire consuming his enemies. And again, one of the things that the Jews were celebrating at Pentecost was the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, the language there says this, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Fire. Fire is judgment. Fire is holiness. Fire is terrible. Fire is intimidating. Fire should make you scared. And when God comes down in fire, in the old covenant, his people step away out of reverent fear as they should. But now when the fire of Pentecost comes down, the amazing thing is that they don't back away. There's closeness. There's warmth. Yes, Pentecost in one way is a fire of judgment, but it's also a refining fire. It's a fire of light and warmth as the Spirit creates life and faith in the heart of God's people. It's a fire that shows that now the heart of each person, each one of these new living stones in this new living temple is in fact an altar on which the fire of God has descended. And it goes on. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem... Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, "Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome." both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Babel is being done undone here once and for all. The curse of confusion is now being put back together as these people from different nations and different tongues that God once scattered out now once again find unity in common cause. This time their unity is real because it is under the lordship of the ascended Christ. The gift of tongues means that the promise of God is not just for the Hebrew people. But in this new covenant era, it is for the nations. And the tongues are not mere strange sounds or ecstatic spirit languages. These are real spoken languages. And I think this is a very common misconception today when people talk about tongues. uh, And it essentially uh, comes to be applied to all strange language or strange sounds that come from our mouth. But friends, it doesn't take any supernatural gifting for me to make strange sounds with my mouth. What would be truly miraculous is if I, right now, without ever having learnt a word of Chinese, suddenly was supernaturally gifted with the ability to explain the gospel to you in Chinese. That is a miracle. That is something only the power of God can do in a supernatural way. So some people see a different gift here in Acts 2 than... Uh, than what is in corinthians but i do not think that is the case the same word glossolalia is used without any redefinition and one faithful understanding of biblical interpretation is that we always use the clear texts to explain the cloudy texts not vice versa so acts two it's clear these are known human languages like german like french like ukrainian these are real languages And the fact that these are real languages from real people, from real scattered nations, is also God keeping his promise to Abraham. Remember, God promised Abraham several times that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is keeping his promise to Abraham at Pentecost. He's bringing these people back in. And just like we don't need to perpetually sacrifice Jesus Christ week in and week out, we talked about this in Sunday school last week in the mass and this perpetual sacrifice being offered, Jesus' death is once and for all. I do believe much of what happened at Pentecost is similar. It doesn't have to keep happening for it to have eternal significance. We don't need to have a miraculous gift of tongues in perpetuity for it to have significance. So often the sign passes away, but the thing being signified remains forever. The symbol falls away, but the thing symbolized lasts. The substance of Pentecost has indeed carried on to this day, long after this miraculous moment in history. We continue to get the gospel out to all people and tongues today as we translate the the word of God and present the gospel to different languages. So surprisingly... Many of our most Pentecostal heroes of the faith had the gift of tongues in a most boring, everyday way. John Wycliffe had this gift as he translated the Bible into English. Jan Hus had this gift as he translated the scriptures into the Czech language. William Tyndale had the gift of tongues. Martin Luther had the gift of tongues as he translated the Bible into German so that the German people could hear the gospel. William Carey had the gift of tongues as he embarked on early missionary endeavors. These men all had the gift of tongues. They all translated the word of God into useful human language to get the gospel to the corners of the earth. And so the gift of Pentecost is alive and well today in all the corners of the world. Even people that aren't big names like the ones I just mentioned. When some family leaves rural Missouri or some unknown little town in northern Alberta, to go into the jungle and learn the language and get the gospel into the hearts of people. Friends, Pentecost is carrying on. The substance is alive and well. So I think to get caught up on the symbol rather than the substance of Pentecost is to make an error that we are so prone to making. The miraculous symbol was temporary, but the thing symbolized carries on today. And it's useful. It does work. The fact that we believe that some of these sign gifts have ceased does not mean that we hold that the universe functions in the same way that materialists believe that it functions. We live and move and have our being in God, and spiritual realities surround us on every hand. The world is not some cold, impersonal machine grinding away according to natural laws. The universe is personally governed by a father God who continues to send his spirit. So again, if we understand what's happening at Pentecost, I want to suggest that some of the charismatic readings of this text that our charismatic brothers and sisters have, uh, my contention isn't that they see too much in the text. It's that they see too little. The gospel continues to go out in every tongue, tribe, and nation the old harvests at this pentecost have gone away and they have led to this terminal harvest the harvest is ready as joshua has told us in the gospel as jesus has told us in the gospel of matthew and the nations are now being given over to the son as an inheritance as he has been ascended and seated at the right hand of his father according to psalm 2 the people here all together have witnessed the events of jesus life they saw him resurrected they saw him ascend, and now they are witnessing the Spirit creating a new covenant world in front of them. They are joined in true unity as God has successfully reversed Babel. God had previously used language to throw people into confusion. And they would divide into nations and speak differently and worship their small territorial deities. How often do you read in the Old Testament, well, their God is a God of the sea, but our God is a God of... right? There's these little territorial deities that all fall away at the true and living God. So what God has thrown into confusion, he's now bringing back together through the proclamation of the gospel. He is keeping his promise also to David and what he sees in Psalm 2 and Psalm one ten one, What was once the means of confusion is now the means of people hearing the announcement of the gospel as the Spirit truly does bring life to every tribe and language and people and nation, as we also read from Revelation 5 this morning. And lastly, verse 12 and verse 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. And it is understandable that if we witnessed a crowd of people spontaneously being able to speak in foreign languages that they've never learned, we too would be amazed and perplexed. But there's two different responses to that. The believing heart asks, what does this mean? And this is why we must always look at the meaning of Scripture, the symbolism of Scripture, rather than to merely content ourselves with just keeping something looking the same. What does this mean is a good question, and it's a sign that the Spirit is at work in these people's hearts. When we look at the whole of redemptive history, from creation through fall, redemption, we do understand what this means. God is healing a great divorce. God is reversing a curse on Babel. God is keeping his promise to Abraham. God is bringing back together what he once tore apart. And a believing heart sees this. But what does an unbelieving heart do? An unbelieving heart starts to mock and starts looking for a naturalistic answer. A hardened heart is going to chalk it up to drunkenness. But like a sudden turn of phrase in an old country song... Sometimes God does write ironic bits into the story of history. Sometimes there is actually a kernel of truth in a slander that the speaker has no idea what he's saying. The accusation here is an accusation of drunkenness. And we know from Scripture that drunkenness is a sin because it controls the mind. It's always set up against sobriety. So the man who is drunk is a mocker. He's listening to a fool for his counsel. His mind is being influenced by, foolish, by foolishness, by folly. And so often in Scripture, drunkenness is contrasted with being filled with the Spirit, like you see in Ephesians 5.18. These are two different voices speaking. The Spirit is controlling your mind, or the drunkenness is. Hannah was likewise thought to be drunk when she was praying, but she was leaning on the Lord. She was pressing in to God in First Samuel 1. There was, in fact, truth that Pilate probably did not intend when he has a sign made up saying, this is the king of the Jews. And perhaps the most obvious and most remarkable one was when Caiaphas offered his unbelieving prophecy, (laughs) clearly not understanding what was coming out of his mouth, when he puts Jesus to death and says, it would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Friends, he had no idea what he was saying. I want to suggest these mockers have no idea what they're saying either. We're 49 days after the festival of first fruits, so that wine that was made is new wine 49 days later. I want to suggest the believers are filled with new wine. They are. Jesus says as much in Matthew 9:17. Chris preached on that. Remember? The the new wine isn't going to fit in the old wineskins. If we're going to have new wine here, people, we need new wineskins. This gospel has gotten too big for your old traditions. These people are drunk on new wine. The wine of the spirit. The wine of the gospel. The wine of this new covenant reality. The new wine has outgrown the old wineskins. Just like the ascension of Christ has outgrown national boundaries. All nations are now to come to Christ, and this is why the gospel is going out in all languages. You cannot contain this gospel. No longer is God's presence limited to one temple, but he is now building a living temple out of living bricks. That's me and you and other believers through history. Living, breathing human beings. Christ seed at the right hand of the Father is a claim to universal dominion over this new temple project that he is building. And so Pentecost moves us finally and fully into the new covenant era of global gospel proclamation. We're moving from death to life, from stone to flesh. And that stone to flesh transition is promised even in the days of stone. In Jeremiah 31, where the prophet looks forward to the new covenant reality, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day in which I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke Jeremiah clearly sees a day in which God's law is going to be internalized in the hearts of his people. And Luke is telling us that day just dropped. That happened. That happened here at Pentecost. This day has come. Jeremiah's hope has been fulfilled. And again, to go back to Ezekiel, where we read about the chapter, the valley of dry bones in chapter 36, and Ezekiel chapter 37. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Remember, one of the things that the Jews were celebrating at Pentecost was the law being given to Moses at Sinai. And when Moses came down with that first set of tablets and he saw the idolatry in the people, he knew they weren't ready for this. He was angry, as he should have been. And what did he do? He smashed those stones. He's angry. Stone is not going to be able to pull this off. And then what does God in his mercy do? He writes a new set of tablets with his finger. That is the work of the Spirit. Stone to flesh. Ezekiel saw that the problem was that the people's hearts were also made of stone. And so they too need to be made new by the finger of God. And again, Luke tells us this day has come at Pentecost. The spirit is in the business of regeneration, of breathing life into dead bones. He is the heart surgeon, and his business is the business of heart transplants. His work is to take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh that desires to know the Lord. To be more faithful, to get deeper into the things of the Lord. The heart of flesh is a heart that is made for joy, and it will never be happy with less than the living God. One of the things that happens at Pentecost is that God's work in giving the law at Sinai is now complete. Both feature fire and wind. And what started as law on a stone has now penetrated to the heart through the work of the Spirit. Moses foreshadowed this when the original stone tablets were replaced by the new ones written by the finger of God. And in the advance of God's purposes, David and Solomon are going to help get this into our hearts. They're going to take God's law, and they're going to put it in wisdom, and poetry, and music, so we can sing it into our bones. These are important men in helping with this advance of just external cold law, getting it. We got to sing it into our bones, people, and ultimately that is going to happen by the work of the Spirit giving us new hearts that want to obey, new desires that want to come to the Lord Jesus. By the end of Acts 2, Peter is connecting this new covenant work with water baptism. Later in his sermon, he gets to that. And water is also frequently used to describe the work of the Spirit as well. Water kills. Water accompanies the arrival of new life when a baby is born. Water washes. And Jesus speaks of living water, which is another descriptor for the Spirit of God. And this is all in fulfillment in the long story of redemption. Pre-fall Eden is an elevated garden with four rivers flowing down from it. Later in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees the new temple with water flowing down from it. And he looks at it, and it's not entirely unlike the Valley of Dry Bones. At first, he looks and it's ankle deep. All right, Ezekiel, go look again. Now it's knee deep. Ezekiel, go back one more time and look. It's waist deep. And finally, it is a torrent that is too dangerous to swim across. This is the water of the Spirit. This is the story of redemption. What starts as a trickle turns into an unmanageable fire, an unmanageable flood. And so the work of the Spirit can legitimately be described as wind and fire, as wine and water. Each picture is majestic, each is glorious, each is dangerous. Holiness is dangerous. Young people, are you ready for a life of true adventure? Do you want to just play it safe or do you want to do something? holiness is dangerous, be prepared for an adventure, it frequently leads God's people into danger, and that's what makes it such an exciting story, and we have echoes of Babel still today, men are still futilely trying to build their empires, men still indulge themselves in vanity projects, and we are reaping what we have sown, as God is indeed confusing our own nation today with idolatry with false worship, self-indulgence, and all the polarization that this brings. People complain about polarization in our society. What else do you expect? We have rejected the living God. What can you expect? Left and right will not get together. Black and white cannot get together. It's not going to happen. Okay, One more program, one more education, one more government spending thing will not fix a darn thing. Okay? This needs to be brought under the blood-bought world of Jesus Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. That's the way out of our polarization. Okay? Roundtable discussions are impotent. Flying around lecturing people on how to be more nice is not going to do a thing. This must be by the Spirit, or it will not happen. We cannot pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. You can't stand in a pail and then hope to lift yourself up by the handle. It's not going to happen. This must be the sovereign wind of the Holy Spirit doing this, bringing people back together. This is the one and only way out of our current confusion, is to bend the knee to King Jesus. His blood alone can wash away the guilt and the shame that drives us to those, fir- those false idols in the first place. But our knees will not bend unless they are made to. And there are two ways that they are made to bend. The way you do not want is for Jesus to crush your knees with his rod of iron. Those knees will bend, but that will not be on your terms. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Some of those tongues in Revelation though, are gnawing in anguish, asking for rocks to crush their heads so it ends. Okay? Some knees are crushed to powder by the rod of Jesus' iron scepter. You do not want that. The other way to bend the knee, is willingly, through the work of the Spirit, through the work of regeneration, through trusting the gospel, through giving your whole life, body and soul, to King Jesus. Bend your knee willingly. Do it. Today is the day of salvation. Pentecost is God's way of putting a day on the calendar of history to remind us that he has not left us alone. He has given us a helper, an advocate, one who will remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so we bow willingly and gladly to the King of all glory. Let's pray. Lord, it is amazing to think of the storyteller that you are. Lord, and we see so much when we're looking for it and yet how much do we really see? Are we seeing 10%? Lord, give us eyes to see the rich tapestry, the layers, the story that you have been telling for centuries and for millennia. Lord, help us to see what you're doing. Make the Bible come alive to us, Lord. Help us to see it. Help us to understand where we are in the story, who we are and who you are. Lord, I pray for each one here this morning. As we think about Pentecost, as we think about the way you have given us your helper, your advocate, On this day, Lord, I pray that we would be fueled by Pentecostal power as we willingly and gladly bend the knee and then take this message to tell to the nations to bring it out to every tongue, tribe, and nation in obedience to your command. Lord, I pray that we would do that with glad and expectant hearts. Help each one here this morning. Lord, whichever corner of history or of geography that we find ourselves on, Lord, give us that Pentecostal power, the courage, to fearlessly proclaim your name, to make you known in every situation that you would put us, Lord. Help us to be truly Pentecostal in the true sense of the word. Lord, help us as Trinity Fellowship to do this well. Help us as leaders and help each one here. We commit this service to your hands. We thank you for the way you have been here. Lord, send us an extra dose of your spirit as you send us out, as you scatter us this week to make you known. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
1: stand as we sing.
0: Receive the, the charge with believing hearts. Pentecost concludes much of God's earlier work. Most notably, it reverses a curse that God sent against idolatrous unity and replaces it with a blessing born out of true unity. In this way, Pentecost also is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abram to bless all the nations of earth. It concludes God's giving the law to Moses on Sinai amid wind and fire. The description of the Holy Spirit's work helps us understand the meaning of Eden's four rivers and how Ezekiel's temple turns a trickle into a flood. The Holy Spirit is wind, fire, and water, and he is now breathing new life into men and women as he fits them for the new creation. He sovereignly gives hearts of flesh, turning his people into a temple not made with hands, a living Torah. While the symbolic outpouring at Pentecost was unique, the substance and the power carries on as we do the work of translation and evangelism. Pentecost is the force behind world missions. As individuals, as families, and as Trinity Fellowship, let us be Pentecostal Christians in the truest and richest sense as we preach to the dry bones, knowing that they can and will live again. And the benediction from 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if the ministry of death... much more will what is permanent have glory and go in peace.